This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Welcome to the program and thanks for joining us. We're going through the mind training text, Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, by Namkar Pell, and have reached a section on the precepts of mind training. These often come in the form of short, pithy sayings, easy to remember and apply in appropriate situations, such as train consistently to deal with difficult situations. You may remember, if you were with us last time, that the commentary on this particular saying mentions five kinds of difficult situations in particular. Those involving powerful karmic beings like our parents and spiritual master, those involving the various members of our family or who we live with, those involving rivals, situations in which people falsely accuse us, and situations in which we meet people we instinctively dislike for no real reason. Over the last few weeks, we've discussed all these situations, and I hope that if you've been with us, you've got some idea why these situations are particularly difficult and how we can approach them. The next aphorism is, don't rely on other conditions. But before we discuss this one, let's set our motivation for participating in the program today as we usually do. It would be great to get the most benefit out of, it, out of our time together, even if it's just for a short half hour. But that depends on our motivation. From a Mahayana point of view, the best motivation is bodhicitta, the motivation to attain enlightenment so we can best benefit all beings. That means both temporary benefit and ultimate benefit. Temporary benefit means whatever benefits in the here and now, like food, shelter, advice for temporary happiness and so on. Ultimate benefit means freedom from all dissatisfaction and suffering forever, in other words, enlightenment. So, I wish to attain enlightenment so I can bring both temporary benefit and ultimate benefit to all beings everywhere. This is what we call bodhicitta, and we can apply it to this program. May my participation in this program be the cause for my enlightenment so I can benefit all beings both temporarily and ultimately. Now, can you have such a motivation, genuinely and wholeheartedly? Now, that's very difficult. But maybe, admiring such a motivation, we can make it in an aspirational sort of way, so that it may become our wholehearted motivation in the future sometime. Here, I'm suggesting that the wholehearted motivation indicates a motivation that is so deeply felt and understood that it cannot be changed, no matter what conditions arise. So, let's turn our minds towards such a motivation for this program. And even if we don't feel it very deeply, aspire to do so in the future. Thank you. Now back to Nam Kapel and the quote, Don't rely on other conditions. I find his commentary on this a little vague, but maybe it be makes clearer sense to you. It goes, In general, when you're practicing such as listening or contemplation, if favorable conditions are assembled, it will be successful, and if the conditions are not met, it will fail. Yet, if someone who enters into this practice and engages sincerely in mind training 
is able to see the lack of favorable conditions as a stepping stone, he will have no fear of external or internal obstacles and will make great advancements towards the awakening mind. It is, I think, talking about one's attitude towards what happens once we've taken on the mind training instructions. Geshe Techok, in his book The Kindness of Others, which is a commentary on the mind training practices, seems to confirm this when he says, We should be particularly careful when things are going well, because such times are very dangerous. If, for example, we have no worries about food, clothing, housing and so forth, our mind can get too relaxed, then distracted and finally let go of the mind training practice altogether. We should be especially vigilant at such times. We should also be very careful when things are going badly and we're facing many difficulties because, again, we are in danger of letting our mind training practice go. It can be quite difficult to practice every single aspect of mind training, so we should try to understand the main points in general and train in those. Then, when challenging circumstances arise, because of our familiarity with the main points of the practice, we will more easily be able to recollect and engage in them. That's Keshe Tekchok. Well, think about how you act when things go well and your concerns are just minor. Life seems to be a breeze and not much of what you attempt goes to awry. Isn't it then easy to become complacent and relax even to the point where the expectation it will always be like this sneaks into your mind and so what is the point in engaging in any of these practices? We can easily get caught out like this. Now, I don't remember it very well and I don't have the book here, but in Lama Zopa is The Door to Satisfaction, there's a true story about a woman who worked in one of those flashy but ultimately soul-destroying industries like advertising or fashion or some such. She was not particularly spiritual and led, as I remember, the mildly hedonistic lifestyle that such people are prone to. Then she got into some psychological fix and somehow met up with Lama Zopa and asked his advice. He gave her a spiritual practice which she adopted and I think she left the industry she was working in for something more beneficial. In due course, her problem faded away. But then, when things were going well again, she gradually gave up the practices Lama Zopa had given her and got back into her old ways again. Surprise, surprise, her former problem duly surfaced once more which finally convinced her to return and stay with the practices and ethical conduct Lama Zopa had recommended. I don't remember the specifics of the story all that well, but you may get the point how easy it is to let go of our practices when things go well. Equally, our practice can go down the drain when things start to go badly. And how often does it seem that once one thing doesn't go as it should, a whole chain reaction of disaster seems to shower down on us. We seem caught in a stream of things going wrong as though some malevolent demon is throwing curveball after curveball at us. At such times, again, it is easy to think that our practice is too hard or it's having no effect, and so what's the point? Celestine Chua describes five negative reactions that can lead to giving up in her blog nine ways to cope when bad things happen on the website tinybuddha.com. For one, she says we can retreat into self-victimization with questions like, why is this happening to me? 
Why am I so unlucky? Why doesn't this happen to anyone else? It's not fair. Or we can react with anger, lashing out at the situation or the people around us. We can jump up and down on ourselves with comments like, Why am I so stupid? Only someone like myself can make such a dumb mistake. We can also fall into depression, which gets deeper and deeper the more we let ourselves dwell on the unfairness of it all. And if we have had depression before and got out, we can just fall straight back if we don't take care of our emotional states. And finally, we can give in to dejection or just give up altogether. As Miss Stewart writes, we decide it's not worth it, that life is out to get us and we should just stop trying altogether. Of course, all these reactions come from taking things personally. The universe is out to get me personally. It is all happening to me, and this stuff never happens to anyone else, only to me. Once we have that kind of attitude, any kind of spiritual practice becomes difficult to sustain. Actually, I've come to realize that none of it is personal. It just seems like that because we're so self-absorbed. Yes, bad things do happen, but also good things happen, and none of it is personal. It's all just causes and conditions working themselves out, and I happen to be a ripple in the process. This can perhaps give us a clue to how to view our experience in a way that doesn't encourage us to let our practice get lax in any circumstances. If we take it personally, then everything is felt very acutely and takes on a meaning quite far beyond what it actually signifies. When things go well and we take it personally, we lose perspective and attach to it so much that it appears it will always go smoothly. And when things go badly and we again take it personally, we hate it so much that we slot into one of the behaviors described by Celestine Chua. If none of what happens is taken personally, our practice can continue under any circumstances. If the circumstances are good, we can be happy knowing that it will not be like that for long. And if not so good, we can still keep on going, knowing that it's due to causes and conditions. The universe is not out to get us, and things will in due course change again. On rickhanson.net, Dr. Rick Hansen has written an article titled Don't Take It Personally that explains all this quite well. It goes like this. Here's an updated parable from the ancient Taoist teacher Chuang Tzu. Imagine that you are floating in a canoe on a slow-moving river, having a Sunday picnic with a friend. Suddenly, there's a loud thump on the side of the canoe and it rolls over. You come up spluttering, and what do you see? Someone has snuck up on your canoe, flipped it over for a joke, and is laughing at you. Now, how do you feel? Okay, now imagine the exact same situation again. The picnic in a canoe... Loud thump, dumped in the river, coming up spluttering, and what do you see? A large submerged log has drifted downstream and bumped into your canoe. This time, how do you feel? The facts are the same in each case. Cold and wet, picnic ruined. But when you feel personally picked on, everything feels worse. The thing is, most of what bumps into us in life, including emotional reactions from others, traffic jams, illness or mistreatment at work is like an impersonal log put in motion by 10,000 causes upstream. 
Say a friend is surprisingly critical towards you. It hurts for sure, and you need to address the situation from talking about it directly to disengaging from the relationship. But also consider what may have caused that person to bump into you, such as interpretations and misinterpretations of your actions, personal health problems, pain, worries or anger about other things, temperament, personality, childhood experiences, causes from the larger context like our economy and culture or world events, and causes back upstream in time like how his or her parents were raised. Recognize the humbling yet also wonderful truth. Most of the time we are bit players in other people's dramas. When you do this, you naturally get calmer, put the situation in context and don't get so caught up in me, myself and I. Then you feel better, plus much more clear-headed about what to do. Really enjoy taking things less personally. To begin with, have compassion for yourself. Getting smacked by a log is a drag. Also, take appropriate action. Keep an eye out for logs heading your way. Try to reduce their impact and repair your boat, that is the relationship, health, finances, career, as best you can. And maybe think about finding a new river. He goes on to list other things that you can do, like notice when you start to take things personally. Be mindful of what that feels like and also what it feels like to relax the sense of being personally targeted. Be careful about making assumptions about the intentions of others. Maybe they didn't do it on purpose. Or maybe there was one not-so-good purpose aimed at you, all mixed up with a dozen other purposes. Reflect on some of the 10,000 causes upstream. Ask yourself, what else could be in play here? What's going on inside the other person's mind and life? What's the bigger picture? Beware getting caught up in your case about other people, the inner prosecutor that keeps pounding on all the ways they're wrong, spoke badly, acted unfairly, picked on you, really, really harmed you, made you suffer, etc., etc. It's good to see others clearly, and there's a place for moral judgment. But case-making is a kind of obsessing that makes you feel worse, plus more likely to overreact and create an even bigger problem. Try to have compassion for the other per people. They're probably not all that happy either. Your compassion for them will not weaken you or let them off the moral hook. Actually, it will make you feel better. And then one final piece of advice he gives is, really soak in the growing sense of ease, strength and peacefulness that comes from taking life less personally. Now this is one way in which we can, as Namkapel says, see the lack of favorable conditions as a stepping stone. For in a way, it is actually using the mind training teachings to practice the mind training teachings. We are training the mind to not taking things personally, so that we can continue practicing the mind training teachings. People like myself, whose minds are not all that strong, and who are addicted to comfort, don't like it when things do not go well. But those further along the path actually prefer things to go badly. As I intimated last week, the great bodhisattvas pray that they will meet difficult situations because they recognize that these will tell them how well they are doing, as well as give them 
greater opportunity to further their practice. So here we've explored the meaning of the instruction don't rely on other conditions. Basically it means not allowing outside conditions to influence our practice of mind training. Whether things go well or not, our practice should continue unabated. Then the next instruction is transform your attitude but maintain your natural behavior. On this, Namkapel comments, At no time should your thoughts be separated from becoming acquainted with the awakening mind. There should be no sudden change in your physical and verbal conduct and your behavior should not differ from that of ordinary people. The great Chikawa said that all our practices of mind training should be inconspicuous to the outside world, but in reality there should be great improvement. Now His Holiness the Dalai Lama comments on this, in other words, we remain normal in our appearance and how we act in terms of fitting into society, but change all our attitudes. In other words, we need not have strange ideas about ourselves. For instance, if we're training our attitudes doing this kind of practice, we don't go out and just do whatever we want. As it is always said, internally we must follow all the spiritual practices, but on the outside act in a manner consistent and harmonious with the environment and the society in which we live. We cannot act in an outrageous manner. Many people have said this, including the great lamas Tsongkhapa and Gung Tan Sam. And then Alan Wallace, in his commentary titled The Seven Point Mind Training, writes, This refers especially to transforming self-centeredness into cherishing others. If we have been selfish, egocentric or indifferent to others, these are indeed afflictions of the mind that should be transformed. But stay the same, the author also says. The point is very subtle, as Geshe Rubton brought out when he discussed this point of practice. Indeed, transform your mind, but make no obvious transformation of your external behavior or speech. This is not to say that we should, that we should leave all our external behavior unchanged. If our speech tends towards exaggeration, slander or deviousness, if our physical habits are clearly unwholesome, we should definitely abandon such actions. There are many cases when overt wholesome action is appropriate, but the advice here is to be discreet about it without calling attention to ourselves. Why? Because we are gratified when people notice how much we have changed, it's very easy for our spiritual practice to become tainted by the eight mundane concerns. Even though we start out with pure motivation, we may still wind up concerned with our reputation. Will people like us more if we practice? Will they praise us behind our backs? Will they give us nice things that we want, or perhaps special advantages? It's very easy to feel superior when we see actual transformations in our being. Showing off our virtue to others feeds this, and this should not be where the priority lies. Many of these practices are concerned with the refinement of actions that are already wholesome. On doing something kind for another person, we have a natural inclination to say, as if waiting for gratitude, By the way, did you notice how clean your windows are? Did you notice what's in the refrigerator? The motivation is self-centered and impure. And this is not to say that the act is evil, but let's fine-tune it 
to see if we can be simply satisfied with the act itself, discreetly, instead of looking for a dividend in others' gratification or expecting a kindness in return. This point, staying where you are while you transform your aspirations, is worthy of serious consideration. And that's Alan Wallace. Chogyang Trumper Rinpoche has a slightly different take on it in his book Training the Mind and Cultivating Loving Kindness. Generally, our attitude is that we always want to protect our own territory first, he writes. We want to preserve our own ground. Others come afterwards. The point of this slogan is to change that attitude around so that we reflect on others first and on ourselves later. You also try to get away with things. For instance, you don't wash the dishes, hoping that somebody else will do it. Changing your attitude means reversing your attitude altogether. Instead of making someone else do something, you do it yourself. Then the slogan says, Remain natural, which has the sense of relaxation. It means taming your basic being, taming your mind altogether, so that you're not constantly pushing other people around. Instead, you take the opportunity to blame yourself. Instead of cherishing yourself, you cherish others, and then you just relax. That's it. It's very simple-minded. Well, how many times have we felt resentful because somebody didn't do their duty or weren't grateful enough? On the website www.theodysseedonline.com I came across a kind of blog titled An Open Letter to the People Who Don't Say Thank You by Caitlin Deal. She writes, Dear people who don't say thank you, I've come across too many people like you recently. You know, the kind of people who refuse to thank others for kind gestures. Just two days ago, I paid for a girl's sandwich because she did not have enough money. Did she say thank you? No. Was I upset? Yes. First of all, I know that your parents raised you better. And even if they didn't, saying thank you is a courtesy that one can learn. Secondly, why don't you thank others? Are you too entitled to say thank you? Are you too lazy to say, to say thank you? Honestly, what is it? Just in case someone hasn't informed you already, I'm writing this to let you know that not saying thank you is rude, unacceptable and extremely irritating. Not saying thank you shows a lack of compassion and appreciation for the people around you. I've noticed that you don't respect the people who are providing you with their services the people who are going out of their way to help you, the people who are being kind towards you. And then she gives some everyday examples of instances when she thinks that we should thank others and signs off the letter, a really annoyed individual. Now I'm not quite sure whether the author is being tongue-in-cheek, but let's take it that she's not. She's seriously annoyed. Isn't she busy with what Chogyam Trimper calls preserving our own ground, insisting that others behave in a way that she demands. But her, her demand is essentially conventional and so trivial. What does it matter whether someone says thank you or not? Honestly, what does it matter that we should get so annoyed over it? Isn't this a perfect opportunity to practice the mind training and not expect gratitude for something that you've done? One of the slogans in the Seven Points of Mind Training addresses just this point. Do not expect rewards, it says. 
For if we do, as this author obviously does, what happens to us when we don't get our reward? Frustration, anger and negative karma. The very situation that the mind training helps us to avoid. Putting ourselves in the shoes of the other, we can find a thousand reasons why the girl did not say thank you for the sandwich. Perhaps she was upset. Perhaps she was preoccupied. Perhaps she was on drugs. Perhaps her parents didn't raise her to be better. That is the way she is. Perhaps, and the list goes on. And so, in fact, she's giving us a wonderful opportunity not only to pay for her sandwich, but to develop the mind of patience that bears with whatever others throw at us. To be kind and compassionate and understanding with their apparent lack of gratitude. How much more wonderful that is than allowing our mind to explode into negativity and harm. In such a situation, shouldn't we thank the one that didn't thank us, that didn't give us the expected reward? She's being so very kind. And part of the wonder is that we don't have to do anything else. After paying for the sandwich, we can walk out of the store with a mind at peace and ease, ready for the next situation, whatever it is. But now let's leave the really annoyed individual there and go on to the commentary of Chogyam Trumpa's famous student, Pema Chodron, in her book, Start Where You Are, A Guide to Compassionate Living. She also talks about using our very own everyday experiences of pleasure and pain to relate to others in a kind of silent tonglen, the practice of giving others happiness while taking on their suffering. She says that this kind of practice has the potential of opening us into the realization of non-duality. She writes, In order to have compassionate relationships, compassionate communication and compassionate social action, there has to be a fundamental change in attitude. The notion, I am the helper and you are the one who needs help, might work in a temporary way, but fundamentally nothing changes, because there is still one who has it and one who doesn't. That dualistic notion is not really speaking to the heart. As expressed in the Lojong, that's the mind training teachings, the fundamental of attitude is to breathe the undesirable in and breathe the desirable out. In contrast, the attitude that is epidemic on the planet is that if it's unpleasant we push it away and if it's pleasant we hold tight and grasp it. So what she's suggesting here is that whatever we experience as pleasurable we imagine giving to all others as we breathe out, and whatever we find painful, we accept and take it in on the in-breath. Now compare this to the actions of that paragon of the worldly being, Donald Trump. Whatever is pleasurable, he gobbles up and demands more and more, while even the slightest pain he deflects and, as quickly as he can, dumps onto others. This worldly way of working may seem protective, but in fact it just exposes our weakness and makes us increasingly more weak while the opposite paradoxically strengthens us. As Pema Chodron explains, she says, this change in attitude doesn't happen overnight, it happens gradually at our own speed. If we have the aspiration to stop resisting those parts of ourselves we find unacceptable and instead begin to breathe them in, this gives us much more space. We come to know every part of ourselves, with no more monsters in the closet, no more demons in the cave. 
And with that we must leave the program for today our time is up. We'll continue the discussion again next week. Thanks for being with us and hopefully you will tune in again next time. Please dedicate any positive potential from the program to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Thank you and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.